Hello and welcome to the third in our special series of assemblies uh, with Upmost. In part one, we looked at stealth taxes, including inheritance tax. And in part two, we did a deep dive into loan trusts. And there's a link to those in the description below. Today, we're doing another deep dive into a potential IHD planning solution, and that's discounted gift trusts. And I'm really pleased that we're working with Upmost again and to be joined by Steve Sayer. Steve, please introduce yourself. Yeah, hi everybody. Uh, I'm Steve Sayer. I'm technical sales manager at Upmost International, and uh, my uh, role is to help the UK sales team uh, in lots of the presentations that they do, um, and having the pleasure of, of presenting to audiences such as yourselves on a variety of different topics, as uh, I'm sure you've heard over the years, as it were. Yeah, thank you, Steve. It's good to have you along. And if you're interested you. in bonds and gains and all those kind of things, and look on our website because Steve features a lot over the last few years with some really good stuff there. And there will be an hour's CPD available and a copy of the slides, and we'll pop a link to that in the description as well. And if you have got any questions having watched this, then please post them on the big tent on our website. And Steve said he'd be happy to come along and answer those. So, Steve, over to you. Okay, thanks, Richard. Yeah. So as Richard said, today, what we're going to, to start to do is to start to look a little bit closer at some forms of inheritance tax planning. Uh, on our last session, we covered uh, loan trusts and we said how flexible they are, but maybe at outset, slight criticism is they're not quite so efficient as maybe some of the others. What we want to do today is take it to the other extreme, if you like, look at something that's not flexible at all once the original decisions have been made, but gives immediate inheritance tax uh, advantages and those advantages can be considerable depending upon the ages of the particular applicants and we'll see how things like the how the discounted gift trusts work we'll see why they are attractive and we'll look at one or two different planning points and compare different types of discounted gift trusts as we go through the presentation We'll then start to look at things such as how the underlying trusts themselves are constituted. Are they absolute trusts? Are they discretionary trusts? Or, or increasingly uh, more often, we're coming across cases where maybe we, there was a discounted gift was being established by the old flexible power of appointment arrangements pre-2006 for those of you who were around. Um, and of course, what's happened with a lot of those type of arrangements is the set, law, set laws are now dying. And of course, then we need to know what happens to that trust and what are the tax implications going forward. We'll then start to look at one or two other things to be aware of, such as making gifts, such as what happens to the, uh, what, what, what insurance policies should be in place, maybe just to cover all eventualities, even when a discounted gift trust is being used, um, and, and one or two other uh, areas that are of importance. Now, I don't know whether we'll actually get to the two case studies or not, uh, but there are two case studies within the deck and they will be left in the deck for you to be able to browse and go through uh, in your own time. And as usual with these things, having done so or having listened to the presentation and you've got any questions whatsoever, uh, please feel free to get in touch uh, with myself via Richard or directly or even with, with any of the utmost international regional sales managers and we'll uh, obviously help you out and answer your questions as soon as possible. So let's start at the very beginning and discounted gift trusts. How do they work? Why are they attractive? And first of all, let's just start at what an individual can do in terms of inheritance tax planning. Obviously, what they can do is, well, a number of things. We can start off with a flippant type of answers, do absolutely nothing. We can start off with spend all the money. But of course, those two things for an awful lot of clients are not really uh, attractive. What they want to do is to plan for their inheritance tax planning in an efficient way as possible. But the question is, well, how do they do that? Because if they make gifts, well, those gifts are either one of three things. They're either exempt, but that only really applies to exemptions between spouses. It may apply to uh, non-DOMs. It might apply to the annual exemption every year, £3,000, small gifts allowances. A number of uh, exemptions are available, but it doesn't really apply to gifts to other family members. Um, so if they're not exempt, then those gifts would be potentially exempt. And that means I can make a gift to another individual not, not my spouse, obviously, to my son, let's say, and providing I live for seven years, then that gift becomes fully exempt. And of course, if they're not potentially exempt, then the last thing they can be is chargeable. 
Now, in terms of a discounted gift trust, well, where do they fit in? Well, they fit in simply because how many people can actually afford to make outright gifts without, you know, without actually in terms of finance, in terms of affording to make that gift outright and not reserve any benefit from that gift whatsoever. And the gift and the discounted gift trust comes into play because it enables clients to make an immediate gift as far as inheritance tax is concerned. It, there, it, it, it also, on top of that, enables them to get an immediate reduction in the value of their estate. And depending upon a number of factors, such as the withdrawals that they have retained from themselves and their life expectancy, then they can get and it, that immediate reduction can be, in many cases, very, very large indeed. Not only that, they get their entire investment plus the growth is outside after seven years. The growth from day one is outside the estate straight away. They've retained for themselves an income in terms of a pre-selected withdrawal for the rest of their life. And of course, the underlying investment with the vast majority of discounted gift schemes is a offshore investment bond. And as we know, we've seen many times from different presentations, of course, what the offshore investment bond does is give the facility of gross roller. So enhances the potential returns. So if we start looking at this in a simplistic way, then what is happening with the discounted gift trust? Well, quite simply, when the discounted gift trust is being settled, the sum that actually enters the trust is not the full amount of the investment effectively. Because what is happening is the settler retains certain rights. All the other rights is gifting away and they are held on trust, but he's retaining a certain right. And that right is the absolute right to future withdrawals, pre-selected at outset, for the rest of his or her, or indeed their lives. All the other rights are gifted away and are held by the trustees. And so in essence, what happens here is the client at outset decides how much withdrawals he wants to take. Those withdrawals are effectively valued by an actuary. The actuary will take a lot of different factors into account, such as the level of withdrawals, the expectancy of the set law or set laws lifespan and that may mean in lots of situations medical attendance reports and in some situations medical examinations and from those two factors the withdrawals and life expectancy the actuary can effectively put a capital value on those future withdrawals that have been retained by the set law now that equates to the discount for inheritance tax purposes. Now, a question that always crops up there, well, how can that equate to the discount if the settlor has actually retained those rights? He's the absolute owner of those rights. And the answer to that question, it's through this particular section on the screen there, section 171 of the Inheritance Tax Act 1984. Now, what Section 171 states that any changes that happen to an that, that, so any changes um, that happen to an estate by reason of death are taken to have happened immediately before death. And the way to think about this is to think of yourself, or think of myself, it might be easier, with a term assurance. And that term assurance has not been written subject to any type of trust. And it's a single life term assurance. I die, my death causes that term assurance to pay out. Now, section 171 says, well, that's taken as an, happening immediately before I die. So that sum assured is in my estate. And that's, of course, why we always write term assurances, whole of life policies, etc., in trust unless they're, well, wherever, wherever it's practically possible, to be honest with you. Now, what's happening here? Well, with a discounted gift trust, I am retaining the right to future income or withdrawals for the rest of my life. When I die, my right to those withdrawals 
stops. Section 171 says, well, those withdrawals have been deemed to stop immediately before death. And therefore, if we were to value those withdrawals, and now the withdrawals are now zero, the capital value has to be zero as well. That's simply, simply, why there is a discount under these types of arrangements. Now, the good news about these schemes is that they have been around for an awful long time. I mean, I think they actually, well, they certainly go back to the 1980s. And in different guises, they could have been around in the old Peter plans, etc., even before that. Which is great news for the advisor today. Because what it means is there's a great history and experience that's been built up in advising on these schemes. But not only that, there's lots of technical notes and technical direction even from the revenue themselves, who, who on their own uh, website dictate or instruct as to how those discounts can be calculated. And providing everything and all those rules and regulations, if you like, are adhered to, then, and, and providing that the actuaries can assess the expected future life expectancy of the set law, and that will be through, say, medical attendance reports or medical examinations in a lot of cases. But providing that is done, then these things should not be challenged and we can safely recommend them as an industry. And okay, so, can I ask a question there before you, you go on to the next slide, which, which comes up quite a bit about discounts? Um, yeah. in that, is it possible that you could take a client scenario to say three different life companies and they go through their underwriting and you end up with three different opinions as to what the discount could be? I, Richard, I honestly don't know the answer to that. I would hope not. Um, I mean, I, I, because if they're following, if, if the medical records and the medical uh, details are coming back for a similar, uh, on, a, on a similar basis or using the same records, they, the actuaries should be able to, I suppose, agree on that life expectancy figure. Um, and as I say, of course, if that is the case, um, we're now using unisex rates to determine those underlying discounts. I, 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 would hope, I would hope there's not too much of a difference. If there okay. is... One thing I will say about this discount figure is for the vast majority of clients, the discount is not important. And the reason why I say that is that the discount is only relevant should they die within a seven year period. Yeah. Now, OK, accidents, unfortunately, happen, but it would be unlikely at outset for a client unless they were severely rated to die within that seven year period. And in which case, then the discount element just completely drops out. And of course, at that point in time, everything is outside the estate and so on. So yeah, I don't think the discount is particularly important in, in the majority of cases, certainly in terms of planning maybe. There's two ways that these carve outs, if you like, of those rights for the settler can happen. The first one is at the trust level. And the second one is at the bond level or policy level underneath that trust. And basically the difference is that the trust carve out level carves out the settlers entitlement before the gift is made so that beneficiaries only become entitled to the gifted part of the investment. And basically what that means is it's then up to the trustees to monitor the underlying discount and what benefits have been paid out to the uh, set law. In terms of the bond carve-out, which is a type of uh, scheme that utmost operates, then the carve-out is at the policy level itself, which means that the underlying responsibility of determining that the set law is paid those withdrawals is on the insurance company itself. And so in effect, what that means is that because the policy has certain conditions on it, such as no surrender option until the death of the set law, then it cannot be, if you like, um, mismanaged to a certain extent. Where And it always is a possibility at the trust level carve-out schemes. Because the other advantage of the trust level carve-out, of course, is that the trust themselves can then invest in different investment bonds. If one investment bond is not performing, it can simply, therefore and cash, surrender, and make another investment. Of course, these days, in this day and age, of course, when you've got uh, bonds that have got multiple um, links 
or the ability of investing in any collective almost, um, then, then the, any underlying investment performance is obviously therefore going to be at the fault of the manager of those investments or whoever's selecting those investments, not necessarily those of the insurance policy itself. So things can be changed within the policy in any case. But the other thing to counter that type of argument of the extra flexibility, I suppose, uh, with the uh, um, with the trust carve out is, of course, should the trustees ever decide to encash one policy, then it's going to give rise to a charge event. And quite frankly, in the majority of cases, that's going to probably stop that, that restructuring in any case. So far better, I think, to have the policy carve out where the insurance uh, company is administering the underlying product, the discounted gift scheme in general, um, and effectively use the wide linked assets um, to manage the investments within the structure itself. Why not collectives? Um, well, simply this is that bearing in mind that the set law has carved out the right to withdrawals, if those withdrawals are paid by the trustees to the set law and some of that money is, is deemed to have come from income, which of course it could be the case, had they invested directly in share in in in, I don't know, in shares, um, in funds, um, directly in savings accounts or whatever, or gilts or whatever, then of course you could have a set law interested trust for income tax purposes. So the bond simply avoids that and makes sure it doesn't happen. Why? Because, of course, it's a non-income producing asset. So let's start looking at this discount in a little bit more detail. So we've, said, we've, 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 we've analyzed as to why there is a discount, because those rights are carved out at outset. We've analyzed why it is discounted at the point of death, because they have no capital value, because there's this deemed to have stopped before death happens. What are the factors determining that discount? Well, the factors obviously are the age of the client. And you'll see on that slide, there's a reference to the Bauer uh, decision. And this is uh, a reference to a case, well, we'll come on to a minute, but where we've got to be careful if the set law has a medical age of 90 or above. What are the factors influence the discount? the state of health of the set law. Because the longer their life expectancy, the greater will be the capital value of those future income flows and hence the greater the discount. But conversely, if they are in ill health and their life expectancy is lower, then they will have a lower discounted amount. And of course, with those two factors comes the actual actuarial calculation of the life expectancy. And coming back to your question, there, Richard. I mean, you know, what are those issues covered by? Well, the age of the client, obviously, we know that the application process, verification of the age, the state of health, well, hopefully it should be the similar or same underwriting uh, that is taking place based upon the same mortality tables. And the, and the mortality tables themselves, well, HMRC uh, will give us guidance on, 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 on what figures to use there. Now, the final thing that is a factor, of course, is the underlying interest rates in the economy. And basically, why does that impact the discount? Well, the discount element itself, the capital value of those, with, uh, those uh, withdrawal rights are basically valued on what an independent party would pay for those rights in the general marketplace. And of course, if interest rates are higher, it either means that he or she has to borrow money at a higher rate of interest to pay for those rights, or the opportunity cost is higher, which means that when interest rates go up, the value of the discounts will come down to a greater or lesser extent. And we've just seen that happen in May of this year. Because there has been, as you all know, a number of changes in line interest rates in the economy. And in May this year, HMRC changed their official interest rate that they that they that they use for the calculation of those discounts, and of course, then that affects our actuarial calculations and so on. And you've seen that discounts are now slightly lower than what they were some some weeks ago. 
So let's start putting some examples on these, on the figures, as it were. And let's take somebody who's 75 year old next birthday, and they want to invest a premium of half a million pounds in the discounted gift trust. They propose at outset to take 4% withdrawals, and they're taking those withdrawals monthly in arrears. The immediate discount for inheritance tax purposes on those levels withdrawals and somebody in with a normal life expectancy for somebody 75 next birthday would give an immediate discount of 176,000 pounds. Which means that the gift element is 323,000. Now, if you're using a discretionary discounted gift trust and the full nil rate band is available, well, that's really good, isn't it? Because that gift element is in the allowable nil rate band which means there's no chargeable lifetime transfer. Now, one thing just to highlight here, because even though the set law has carved out that discount of £176,000, if he or she were to die the following day, it's still half a million, 500000 that's in the trust. And that is available then for distribution to the beneficiaries. Now, we mentioned the Bauer case, and the Bauer case was a, well, a sort of high-profile case a number of years ago um, where the revenue sought to challenge the discounts that were being offered uh, under a particular case, in the case of Bauer's um, going back to 2008. And basically, the outcome of the challenge was that the revenue... Um, said basically that if we were to take a, somebody who had a medical age of 90 or above, there is no independent third party would buy those rights to income for a 90-year-old because they couldn't determine with any accuracy how long they would live. And so what they would have to do effectively was to go out and insure against that 90-year-old dying to protect their investment and of course what, what what that means is well can you get insurance policy for a 90 year old extremely difficult indeed now in effect what happened was the revenue lost the case of the first tribunal and they, and they uh, uh, appealed and they won the case under appeal and basically what that means now and this is where we are as an industry is if you have a client who has a medical attain, attained age of 90 or above, it is, we cannot give any discount in the calculation of their life expectancy effectively. We could still take them, the individual investment, but if they are medically uh, rated at 94 or above, then effectively they, we, we have to decline the case now. And that's, again, just purely one of uh, setting, I suppose, the risk to the, uh, the, the set law's life expectancy. Now, other questions. Well, we've got to consider things like uh, um, the gift with reservation provisions. And the gift with reservation provisions uh, that is um, relevant here in terms of um, carve-out um, policy, carve-out settlements, if you like, um, is basically that one there, it's Finance Act 1986, Schedule 20, Paragraph 7. And basically, the wordings or part of the wordings are on that screen as well, because it refers to policies of life insurance or policies of insurance on the life of the donor or his spouse. Should be his or her spouse, I suppose. Which means that if you were entering into or in, uh, a client was investing in a discounted gift trust and the trustees invested in a life assurance policy and the life assured of that policy was a, the donor, his or his or her spouse, or set law, his or her spouse, same thing, interchangeable, then effectively there could be a gift with reservation. Now, how that is circumvented generally for companies that, that, that only operate life assurance policies, then they tend to say, well, you can only have 
uh, lives assured other than the set law or the set law spouse, so i.e. children. With ourselves, who also offer capital redemption bonds, then we circumvent that particular or potential issue by using a capital redemption bond as the underlying investment. And of course, as you know, capital redemption bonds have no lives assured. Okay, um, so on the uh, discounted gift trust, basically what can happen? Well, as and when benefits are to be payable, then the capital redemption bond obviously gives other advantages to the client because not being a life assurance policy, it will, can continue potentially up to 99 years. And so when the individual settler dies, his withdrawal rights come to an end, the capital redemption bond can continue either directly as a trust investment or can be assigned directly to the beneficiaries. And again, then you have a number of choices as to what levels of income, withdrawals, if you like, surrender that you want to take and all the usual things on investment bonds and how they're taxed on surrender withdrawals so it will apply and so what the capital redemption bond does it also gives if you like the 100 percent guaranteed control over when any future chargeable event will occur and by having that gives you a control potentially of that overall tax liability and so quick summary for this point the discounted gift trust. Who is it available for? Well, individuals, but not only individuals per se, but also partners, whether it be married couple, couples or civil partners. And obviously, because it's an inheritance tax plan, it's those who have a UK potential inheritance tax liability. It gives an immediate discount in terms of the inheritance tax liability, and it can be vast, although care what I said earlier on, for the vast majority of clients, they're going to live more than seven years. And so that immediate discount maybe is not the biggest factor here. It gives them an income in terms of that pre-selected withdrawal for the rest of their life or, you know, certain situations, I suppose, if, if poor investment performance by, you know, the external investment managers or who are selecting the underlying funds, if they're fund was to pre, uh, prior exhaust or prior uh, or diminish completely before the settler died, then the income would cease. All the growth from day one is outside the client's estate. It is not suitable if the settler or settlers do not require an income. You've got to take some withdrawal, but that withdrawal can be very low. And there are many cases that actually have been done where withdrawals have been in the region of half percent per annum. Not the five, but only 0.5% per annum. Now, why would you do that? Well, there's lots of situations where clients want to make tax-efficient gifts to their children, but are perhaps concerned of their, of their children's financial maturity. And so if you have a client, let's say, who's going to gift his children a million pounds, they might be worried that if they can get their hands on their money immediately, then... Well, it might be a good form of inheritance tax planning, but it's not necessarily a good form of succession planning to enrich the next generation. They'll have a good time, but that money may soon go. So what they can do is to invest in a discounted gift trust. They don't need income themselves, but they apply for the minimum withdrawal level of half percent per annum. And of course, what that means is if they've used an absolute variant of the trust, they've triggered a potentially exempt transfer as before. So fantastic news. But now the difference is, there is no surrender option under the policy until the settler dies. So you trigger the pet as before, but now the, the donee cannot physically access the money until a later date when the donor physically dies. So again, it has different types of uses. The policy, no, sorry, the, 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 the client's life expectancy is underwritten at the start. Obviously care if the client is medically rated or actually uh, has an age of 90 or over. There's no inheritance tax whatsoever due if the client survives for seven years. Obviously, if they can have control over the destination of proceeds, if they use a discretionary variant of the trust. And I think the final thing dare to say, it's tried and tested. They've been in use for several years. And again, I refer back to the revenue's own technical notes. 
So going on and starting to look at the types of underlying trusts that used with the discounted gift trust. And I suppose we could simply divide this into a pre and post March 2006 uh, um, type of um, arrangements, as it were. Because back in March 2006, the world, well, I think was possibly an awful lot simpler in some respects. Uh, we had absolute trusts, we had um, discretionary trusts, and then we had also these uh, flexible power appointment trusts, the old interest in possession trusts that had this exemption from the relevant property uh, regime. And then, of course, March 2006 came along and Gordon Brown, the then chancellor, decided to change things somewhat. And he removed this exemption that flexible power of appointment trusts had. And so now in this post 2006 world, then I suppose we have now only got well, we've got the three types of trust arrangement. For new cases, we've got an absolute variant or we have a discretionary trust variant. Discretionary trust variant is subject to the relevant property regime. But increasingly so, we've got pre-2006 policies where the set law is dying, or perhaps in some cases, where appointments have been made by the trustees to other beneficiaries. And we need also to consider what the tax implications are there. So let's just take the first two in the simply, the discretionary trust versus the absolute trust. What are the pros? What are the cons? What's the benefits? What the negatives are? So the pros of the discretionary trust, as we all know, you've got no beneficiary with interest in possession. You've got the trustees have got wide powers to change the beneficiaries or to appoint to different classes of beneficiaries if they think that's the right thing to do. <clears throat> and of course, what that does, it enables the trustees to take into account changing the family circumstances. So whether that's death, whether it's divorce, whether it's marriage, whether it's new children, <coughs> whatever, excuse me, <coughs> the trustees can take those things into account. It also means <coughs> that the trust assets are not in the beneficiary's estate until those assets are actually physically distributed to them. And in terms of tax planning, it means everything in that trust is outside of anybody's estate for inheritance tax plan. So it makes it a lot of pros as far as discretionary trusts are concerned. The downside of discretionary trust arrangement is any gift, any settlement into that trust, and we're talking of the gift element here, over and above the set laws nil rate band, that should be 325, but it might not be in all cases, remember, then you're looking at a chargeable lifetime transfer. You're also looking at the calculation of periodic on exit charges, as and when monies leave the trust, periodic charges every 10 years and so on, because it's part of the relevant property regime. I'm saying that, again, the actual tax taxes are due. Um, well, I mean, I, I think they're probably um, not too onerous, bearing in mind the advantages and the flexibility that they give the client. In terms of the absolute trust, the absolute trust bearing to the discounted gift trust, well, beauty of that is the gift part of the DGT is a potentially exempt transfer, which means that there is no limit as to the, as to the size of that gift element can be. Even if you're investing five million pounds and that gift element is three million or three and a half million, it's not going to trigger an immediate tax charge. Now, what that means, of course, is that for bigger clients, they will tend to use the absolute variant. It also means there's no initial reporting, unlike the relevant property variant. No periodic or exit charges, and it's totally free after seven years. But of course, the downside of the absolute version is you've got to make all the decisions at outset, including who those beneficiaries are. And once those beneficiaries have been decided, they cannot be changed. And worse still, if the beneficiary should predecease the set law, then in which case the trust assets or their share of the trust assets are inside their estate. And of course, some form of planning should be undertaken to uh, ensure that eventuality. And so if we actually compare the two, what happens on the death of the set law? Well, of course, in terms of discretionary uh, variant, though, of course, if you've got transfers in less um, the available nil rate band, then effectively 
then any transfers in excess of the nil rate band is taxable at 40%. Again, the absolute variant is a potentially exempt trans transfer. Um, any gifts subject subsequent to the DGT? Well, of course, you could have issues on failed pets that become chargeable that might reduce um, uh, or might increase the tax payable on later gifts. Same with a discretionary DGT or use part of that nil rate band, but also any future settlements as well, of course. Any chargeable transfers within the previous seven years will affect ongoing periodic charges. And of course, you know, so lots of issues between the two. Of course, any uh, gift um, that does become chargeable, of course, is or will qualify for that taper relief depending on when death occurred, how long death occurred after that initial gift. And of course, the usual table is on there. So question then, which trust for which clients? Well, simply the absolute trust because it depends on, it, it utilizes the potentially exempt transfer treatment of the way of that gift is therefore the larger amount but it's there for clients of course who have a degree of certainty of those beneficiaries and know that they will not need or there will be no need to change those beneficiaries at some stage but it's also there if you like in conjunction or there as a further option for clients who are maybe attracted to the discretionary version of the DGT, who have now utilized their nil rate band through that gift element, but have further investments to make. There's nothing to stop them taking an absolute, sorry, a discretionary DGT out up to the nil rate band for the gift, and then an absolute uh, DGT for sums above. So you can use it in conjunction with each other. In terms of the discretionary variant, who's that for? Well, that's for people, obviously, who have got some nil rate band available, but for people in general who want the flexibility of being able to change the beneficiaries under that trust. And, of course, we come to the final element, those trusts that were established on a pre-2006 basis, pre-March 2006. Because on pre-March 2006, I think nearly every, well, most discounted gift trusts were established on a flexible power of appointment basis. And basically what this meant was on a flexible power of appointment basis, the gift element qualified as a potentially exempt transfer, but there was this exemption from the relevant property regime, which meant that you, you had unlimited amounts of gifts. So great, what better than what the discretionary version is now. But of course, not only that, there was no periodic charges, no exit charges either. So in essence, it was the best of both worlds. Now, of course, that has come to an end. But there is still a lot of clients around who settled monies onto a discounted gift trust before these changes happened. And it's for those clients that we need to know what happens when the death of the settler occurs or indeed, in some cases, what happens if the death of a beneficiary occurs? Because it has different implications. And so basically what we can do is we can start looking at these things in, in, in order, as it were. So if we start looking at interest in possession trusts, again, what happens if that interest in possession comes to an end? And let's say it comes to an end on the full distribution of those benefits to the settlor. Remember, this can only happen, sorry, to the beneficiary. This can only happen after the settlor dies because the policy has no surrender value until that point in time. Now, if that situation happens, the interest in possession ends, the trustees pay out the benefits to the beneficiary, well, everything is inheritance tax neutral. Because obviously the assets are now in the beneficiary's estate, so get to inheritance tax, but as a life tenant on a pre-2006 trust, the assets were in his or her estate in any case. So it's an inheritance tax neutral position. What happens if they pay out on full distribution of capital uh, and then money is distributed to another beneficiary? Well, again, in this situation, the IIP will end and it would be a potentially exempt transfer from the interested possession beneficiary to that new beneficiary. Okay, what happens on the death of that interest in possession beneficiary? Um, because at that point in time, remember, it's 
an asset of their estate, and of course it falls inside the estate, and their estate would be liable to inheritance tax on the value of that asset. And a number of things happen. It depends on where that interest passes to. If it passes to the interest in possession, possession beneficiary's surviving spouse, automatically, then it qualifies as a transitional serial interest, which means that it will continue. That interest in possession will continue. But otherwise, if it passes to somebody else, then effectively it becomes relevant property. And you see, this is a problem because if you have an interest in possession created 2006, that's file appointment created 2006, and you have two beneficiaries, named beneficiaries, the life tenant, and one of those life tenant dies, then what you've got, well, if his interest doesn't pass to his surviving spouse for whatever reason, you've then got a trust that is part an interest in possession trust and part a relevant property trust. And then it starts to get a little bit complex. And then the final situation would be, well, what happens if the trustees use their powers given to them under the old flexible power appointment trust to effectively change the interest in possession beneficiary, but keep the money in the trust? And again, situation similar to the one just outlined, that interest in possession ends. Basically, it now becomes a relevant property trust. And of course, you've got a number of things to watch out for. The settler is still the, the settler of the trust. He or she is still entitled to those withdrawals. There's no surrender option of the underlying policy, remember. And basically, that original interest in possession cannot continue to stay on as a potential beneficiary. Otherwise, there could be a good reservation of benefits. And it basically, as it says there in the last paragraph, that's something to avoid doing really, unless it's absolutely impossible. But there's a lot of potential issues here with these type of trusts. And as I say, the good news is that where they're cropping up is, but not good news, is I suppose where the set laws are now dying and people are wanting to know what to do with those trusts. But in certain situations, the set laws are still alive and the trustees are making decisions or advisors are potentially making decisions not quite aware of what the implications are. So just a word of caution, if you like. So, yeah, <clears throat> right. So, again, I think we've probably been through that side in previous ones. So common questions. Once the withdrawal level from a discounted gift trust has been selected, can it be varied? And the answer, strictly speaking, is no. And the reason why is if the actuaries at outset are putting a capital value on the expected income flow, then they've got to know what that income flow is and how long it's there for. If that income flow can vary, then that capital value can vary. And that could potentially lead to a challenge by HMRC. Can a discounted gift trust be set up on a joint settler basis? Yes, it can. And the beauty of setting these things up on a joint settler basis is that the discount will be higher. And the reason why it's higher is that income, that withdrawal right, will be carved out until the failure of the second life. <coughs> is it essential to undergo, undergo underwriting at outset? Yes, it is. What that underwriting entails will very much depend upon the state of health and the questions, the answers to the questions that come back on the application form. But it may include a medical attendance report, and in some cases it may include a medical examination. Does the bond need to be encashed by the trustees on the settlor's death? No, it doesn't. It's a calf redemption bond. Uh, and it therefore can continue within the trust or be assigned to the beneficiaries as and when it has, as and what is the most appropriate. Why use a cap redemption bond? Well, two reasons, because it overcomes the anti-avoidance legislation we said earlier, but also because it gives 100% guaranteed control of when a future chargeable event will occur. Do the pre-owned asset tax rules apply? No, it doesn't. The revenue confirmed. This is a true carve-out scheme, and they've gone in writing on their website to say that it doesn't apply. Can my spouse have access? Well, the answer is potentially they can apply as a joint set law to gain access through those withdrawal rights. But also, if you are setting these things up on a single settler basis, it is perfectly possible to have your widow or widower as a potential beneficiary 
under the trust terms, which means that when the settlor dies and that rights to a withdrawal stops, the trust either becomes a straightforward absolute trust or perhaps more relevantly for a lot of people, a straightforward discretionary trust. And of course, by having the spouse as a beneficiary of that discretionary trust means that the trustees have discretion to advance income to her or even capital to her or even make loans to her. Because, of course, if they advance capital to her, it's great, but she needs to spend it because otherwise it's back inside their estate and it's accumulating value. <clears throat> so things to be aware of. Excuse me. Right. OK. <clears throat> first things first. Right. So things to be aware of. Um, let's take uh, this example that we used previously. So remember the 75 year old half a million pounds investment taking 4% withdrawals. We've said the discounts 176,000 pounds and she's using a discretionary discounted gift trust or he's using a discretionary discounted gift trust here. And so the gift element was less than the nil rate band. It was a charge for lifetime transfer, but of course, at a zero rate. So no tax to pay. That's great. So the question is, well, what happens 10 years later? Well, 10 years later, being a discretionary trust, effectively, then you, what you've got is you've got the client is now 80. Sorry, the settler is now 85 year old. He or she is still taking those withdrawals. And effectively, the bond has increased in value. And whatever value is increased to, it, it makes no difference. It's the principles that's involved here. But what you can do in order to assess the potential periodic charge due at that point in time is you can discount the value of the trust assets by the expected future income stream. A bit like you did at day one when the set was 75. Now he or she's 85. That withdrawal, that income stream capital value has gone down, but it's still there as a discounted factor. Furthermore, you can also discount the trust assets by what is known as an assurance factor. And what this is, it's effectively a reduction because it is not possible to actually pay out those benefits or a third party would, if they bought those benefits, would not be able to access those benefits again until the settlor dies. And so putting those two factors into this equation, we'll assume that the trust value is now £527,000. We discount it by its assurance factor for this person of 85 next birthday. So that then discounts the, uh, the, the, the trust value to £328,000. Take off that future income value, the capital value of income, of the expected future income flow of £116,000. And the actual relevant property value, the terms of assessing how much periodic charge is due, is now only £210,000. And of course, what that means is because it's going to be less, probably, than the trustees' nil rate band, less careful, of course, if there's been any previous charge or transfers in the, in the seven years prior to the establishment of the trust, but we assume there isn't. So it's going to be less than the trustees' nil rate band then effectively, there's going to be no periodic charge to pay. Now, let's contrast that with a simple scenario of we've got exactly the same trust value, but the settlor had now died the day before the 10th anniversary. Because at that point, this is no longer a discounted gift trust. It's effectively now a discretionary trust. There's no carve-out rights left. And at that point in time, <clears throat> we have to take the bond value take off the assumed nil rate band and of course in this particular example we're left with a periodic charge of potentially twelve thousand pounds so the value of the discounted gift trust is not only there at outset it is also available going all the way through in terms of discounting and reducing potential periodic charges going forward so <clears throat> let's now turn to what happens in terms of gift elements and things to be aware of so we're going to take Charles. He's got a current estate, two million pounds, and he's investing, just for the sake of argument, a million pounds into a discounted gift trust. And he's using the absolute variant for whatever purpose. He's happy to make a pet. His family situation is uh, is secure, and so on. 
No previous potentially exempt or chargeable transfers in the seven years. Uh, he's a widower. His wife died a few years ago. And we assume that just for simplicity, they've never owned a house. So we don't have to take the residence no rate plant into account. We also assume that uh, Charles's wife never utilised her nil rate band, and so it's available as a hundred percent uplift, effectively, uh, for Charles's estate on his death. And so, in a nutshell, this is what we've got: we've got a, a two million pound estate, million pounds being invested into a discounted gift trust on the absolute uh, version, and we assume that the immediate discount is six hundred and twenty-five thousand, which means that the potentially exempt transfer element. Is 375,000. So nice and simple. So the question is then, well, what should we be looking at in terms of insurance policies to cover the eventualities when this DGT is invested in that Charles should die within the seven year period? And of course, we've got to look at the gifts and the effects on the estate uh, for that purposes. So we've got the immediate discount, that's 625. We know the 375 is going to be covered by the nil rate band and the transferable nil rate band that's available if Charles dies within seven years. So that's fine. And that will leave a residuary nil rate band effectively or from those two nil rate bands of 275. And of course, that again will be able to be utilised against the residuary estate. But that will still leave £725,000 of the estate that's liable to tax. Some of it is is, is because of that nil rate band has been utilized elsewhere and some of it is going to be in excess of the nil rate band even when it does return after the seven year period and so we just followed it on for seven years and now we've got the situation where the pet has now fallen outside the equation and as far as the other assets of the estate the million pounds assuming no growth then we've got now the full nil rate band and transferable nil rate band available at 650 to be utilized against those other estates assets once more. Again, a 350,000 surplus. And so the policies that should be put in place to cover those eventualities. Well, first of all, the potentially exempt transfer, well, that's covered by the nil rate band, the transferable nil rate band, as we've said, that 275 of the other assets covered by the nil rate band, transferable nil rate band, again, as before. But basically, what we need to do is to have a 375,000 uh, um, potential loss of the nil rate band, and we need to provide a seven-year term assurance, so to cover 40% liability on that, so for £150,000. And the remaining 350,000 surplus is always going to be subject to inheritance tax, and that, of course, could be covered by a whole of life, again, for the 40%. Uh, chargeable amount of that, so £140,000. So a simple little structure, but it's amazing how many different types of policies we've got to start to consider. But these things have to be considered because, again, pets, unfortunately, can fail. Next question, withdrawals in excess of the 5%. I mean, it is, is it likely to happen with a discounted gift trust? Well, it, it can happen, and simply where it can happen is situations whereby you have, um, I don't know, year 21 and the client's been taking 5% a year. The 5% have all been used. Every withdrawal thereafter is an excess. But there's other areas and where we've got to consider what the impact would be in terms of the discount value and the impact it may have, in terms of advisor charging, and in terms of a conversion option, if you've taken normal capital redemption bond and converted into a discounted gift trust. So first of all, in terms of the overall discount value, well, it has to be taken into account by the actuaries that there is a possibility at some stage in the future that there may be excess withdrawals. And if those excess withdrawals were to happen, then the third party, that independent person buying those rights in the open market, of course, would pay less for them, wouldn't it? And so it is factored in, and again, it's factored in in the actuarial actuaries uh, equations. In terms of advisor charging, well, the good news here is that any advise, advisor charging for the purposes of the discount is not impacting the discount. It's not saying it's not impacting chargeable events, but it means that the discount calculations do not have to take advisor charging into account which of course makes life an awful lot easier. 
In terms of the conversion option of a capital redemption bond to a discounted gift trust, and here we have one of the unique features with the utmost capital redemption bond, because you can convert a normal capital redemption bond at any stage in the future to a discounted gift trust without triggering a chargeable event. Now, the things to bear in mind here is this means, of course, is that every cap redemption bond is effectively a deferred DPT. So that's great planning if you might need to plan for inheritance tax two, three, four, five years down the line. Important issues to be, bear in mind is that the initial, sorry, the withdrawals that's selected on this conversion option are based upon the initial premium, but the actual discount is calculated on the value at the date of conversion. So these things, again, just need to bring them into account. Again, there's an example on that screen to show how it works. But also that has to be brought into account is any previous excesses that might have been taken from that capital redemption bond or any previous withdrawals. Because any 5% that have already been taken before the conversion option was applied means that there's less 5% in the future. And so that third party buyer would pay less for them, so effective discount figure. But of course, we need to separate those withdrawals between what were within the 5% and what were excesses. Because those excess withdrawals will not impact the availability for the future 5%. But again, the actuaries will do that. But it's worth bearing in mind the situation in terms of, um, in, in, in terms of any conversion option in future. Then a final couple of slides, chargeable events and discretionary discounted gift trusts. Just a word, I suppose, just, just, just to tidy things up, if you like. In terms of a discretionary discounted gift trust, um, what happens on a chargeable event? Well, it depends on when that chargeable event occurs. Because we are looking here, in our case, with offshore bond. And basically, if the trustees encash the bond, and remember, they can only encash the bond once the settlor dies, because there's no surrender options. But if they encash the bond in the year of death, the financial year of death of the settlor, then it's the settlor's estate that is liable for that chargeable event gain or the tax on that chargeable event gain. If they encash the policy in the following financial year, then it's the trustees themselves that are liable for the chargeable event gain. And the difference there, of course, is the trustees rate of tax is 45% and they have no top slicing. If it was taxed on the set law, then it's the set law's estates that's liable for tax and it would be liable to top slicing. But instead of that, what they can do instead is simply assign the bond or segments direct to the beneficiaries, and when they encash the policy, then the tax is liable on the beneficiary. And the final slide for now is that just to say that in terms of bear trust and chargeable events, so we've got an excess withdrawal from the bear trust, and of course, what normally happens with that situation is the excess withdrawal would be taxed upon the beneficiaries. That's how, a that's how a bear trust works after all. But there's a special dispensation with discounted gift trusts. Then the revenue recognise that if there's an excess withdrawal because it's an ongoing, well, ongoing withdrawal, so year 21, client's still taking 5%, it's therefore all excess, it's there for the benefit of the set law. And in that particular circumstances, what it means is that charge event excess is accessible on the settlor, or should I say donor, rather than the beneficiaries. Once the donor dies, then you're back to where you were with bear trust. But in the meantime, it's a useful uh, benefit. Now, I said just briefly and very, very briefly, there's two case studies in the following slides. Uh, we've got case study one, where we're comparing a, a particular couple who are considering doing a joint settler discounted gift trust compared to two single settler discounted gift trusts. And it analyzes what the differences are in terms of the discounts available, but also in terms of the extra flexibility it gives and the access to potential capital for the surviving spouse on the first death. Then a second case study is one that we've again referred to previous and it's an example whereby a client wants to make an investment in a discounted gift, gift trust, wants to carve out a fixed level of withdrawals, but is in, in essence investing 
more or making the gift elements a lot more than the uh, available nil rate fund. And so what we consider there is for him to make an investment into a discretionary gift trust up into his nil rate band and then to an absolute trust for elements over and above that and how they work in tandem with each other. And with that, I think, Richard, it's back to you. Wow. Thank you, Steve. That was, again, another really good deep dive there. There's there's loads of intricacies of, of discounted gifts trust that you covered really well there. Um, lots of food for thought and lots of planning ideas. So thank you for that. And don't forget, you can download the slides, you can get your CPD uh, and links to all sorts of other resources uh, below the video on our website. Well, um, if you do have any more questions, and I was writing down a few as I went there, so I'm going to fire those off to Steve. Um, if you've got any more questions, pop them on the big tent um, or email us direct, uh, and then Steve will be happy to answer those um, as and when they come in. Um, but that's it for us. Just remember me to say thank you so much to Upmost for supporting the Power Plans Assembly yet again this year. Pleasure. And a massive thank you to Steve for joining us and sharing your expertise uh, in such an insightful way. Um, so that's it. Thank you from us, and goodbye. <laughs>